Hey there, listeners. Thanks for joining us on Crime Explorer Shack. I'm your host, Sherry Carroll, joined by my co-host, Dawn. I want to remind you that Crime Explorers is created for mature audiences only. Most of our shows include details of true crime cases that some may find a bit disturbing and or offensive. As an extra heads up, most episodes include discussion of depression, psychosis, suicidal thoughts, rape, and or murders, sometimes even of children. We do our best to hold these topics with intention and sincerity and try to deliver the facts of the cases to bring awareness to our listeners. And as always, the accused are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. So I feel obligated to put this trigger warning out before we even get started. We hope that you will join us whenever you feel ready and able. So let's get started to go to the Crime Explorer Shack. Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of Crime Explorer Shack. I am Sherry and I'm here with my awesome co-host Dawn. Hi everybody. Hi Sherry. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Well, I'm recovering from strep, so I probably won't be talking a whole lot, but I I can't not talk. You know that. (laughs) Oh, I know. I know. So, uh, I'm glad that you were able to join us. I'm glad you're feeling a little bit better. I was oh, worried. Yeah, sure. I was worried. So, <laughs> you know, I was trying since this is Thanksgiving week. I had we had discussed about doing just the Crime Stoppers episode, but um, I decided I would go a little bit different. This is um, a story that is close to my husband. It is dealing with some of his ancestors, you know, by proxy, basically, some of his extended family. That's cool. Yes, it is. It took place in Campbellton, Florida, which is about 20, 30 minutes away from where I live. Yeah, there's a whole lot of crime. I know you're just sitting here thinking, okay, we just did one <laughs> across the way. And yeah, what am I missing? <laughs> I didn't realize you were that close to Florida, Sherry. Yes. Wow. Yes, yes I am. Um, as a matter of fact, when I used to work at um, the prison in Graceville, that's 10 minutes away. Yeah. Huh. Yes. So, but this is about a family. Their last name was Christmas. The Christmas oh. family murders in Campbellton, Florida. And this took place in the early 1900s, late 1800s. I believe it's wow. 1905, 1906. So there's not anything that I was able to look up on the internet. The information that I was able to find was from saved newspaper articles from my husband's mother who passed away and uh, some articles that um, my husband's cousin Kay had researched from the Dothan Eagle um, newspaper. So basically I'm going to be pretty much using their sources, the Dothan Eagle here in Dothan, Alabama. And these articles were, um, oh goodness, I believe it was in written in 80, no, 97, 1997. Um, Marlene Womack, who has, um, she was the contributing writer 
um, she has since passed away as well. So I couldn't follow up with her either. So, well, it's still probably way more reliable than anything you could find on the internet, you know, the exactly. Way that gets exactly. exactly. So um, I'm going to pretty much read and then I will kind of follow up with some stuff that we've heard as well that have been passed down a little bit of legend. So Ooh, sounds um, good. <laughs> so um, I have actually been in this house. Oh, wow. So I will go into that a little bit too. Um, this article was entitled the Christmas family murders are a part of Campbellton's history. Most people remember Campbellton for its curving railroad overpass and single traffic light on U.S. Highway 231. Campbellton is located in northwestern Jackson County. It's the last town travelers pass through when leaving the state or the first one they come to when entering Florida. A trip off of the highway reveals a little more about the community that can be traced back to the 1820s. Campbellton was part of the fertile Chipola country of long ago and some of the first land settled in Florida. Indian camps were located nearby. When Campbellton was established, it stood about eight miles north of what is now the lost town of Webville, which vied with Mariana to become the seat of government in Jackson County. Several plantations stood along the community's beautiful tree canopy, sand roads, and rolling hills before and after the Civil War. Campbellton reached its peck during the 1900s. Today, the town is known for its landmark Campbellton Baptist Church and its ancient graveyard, which dates back to 1625. And across the roads are the boarded up remains of the Campbellton High School where players excelled in basketball until the school closed in 1964. A few of the turn of the century homes exist from the prosperous days of corn and cotton. Sections of the building that housed the Masonic Lodge still stand across from the weed covered town square where the farm families came on Saturdays in mule drawn wagons to gossip and chat. But for the most part, the many mercantile companies, drugstores, the bank, jail, and old depot are all gone. Campbellton stands as a shadow of its former self. Yet, ask older residents and those who grew up in Campbellton area what they recall most about the place. And they'll tell you it's the Christmas murders. Hmm. It's a slaying so gruesome they still haunt the town. The killings rivaled the Lizzie Borden case of the 1890s. Whoa. Yeah. Yet, instead of the, quote, 40 wax with an axe, end quote, in the famous Massachusetts rhyme, the killer of the Christmases hacked each person only enough times to do them in, half severing their heads <gasps> and slitting their throats. Oh, jeez. Several stories originated as the result of these murders, and each with their own twist and variations. Some even say the spirit of Christmas has walked the land near his old house. Mm. So about the family, J.M. Christmas's roots extend back several generations in Florida. Although he was born in Georgia, June of 1845, his parents, Moses and Martha Christmas, were settled in Jackson County by 1860. While still a young man, J.M. Christmas 
fought with the partisan rangers during the Civil War. This unit protected salt makers and blockade runners from the Yankees on St. Andrews Bay. And after the war, he went on to marry and um, prosper, even though he had only a rudimentary education. His first wife died in 1869. Um, Then he remarried a woman named Martha Ann. By 1906, J.M. Christmas, or Judge Christmas, as people called him, had become one of the most prominent men in Jackson County. He operated a large plantation about six miles east of Campbellton with a commissary on the grounds and several other businesses. Uh, Headwaters of the Chipola River flowed through his land and provided his plantation with a plentiful supply of water. And like most couples of that era, the Christmases lost several children, Jeremiah, 9, in 1897, Willie and Maxie, who were twins in 1897, Robert and and Alvin, or Robert Alvin, age 7, in 1899, and James Marvin, age 3, in 1903. I thought you were going to say they were babies. Why Why were they losing so many kids? Well, you know, they had such illnesses back then, like scarlet oh, fever, oh, um, malaria. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And there were so many illnesses that weren't treatable, uh, smallpox, stuff like that. So, yeah, that's true. Okay. It doesn't say what their illnesses necessarily were, but that's what I'm leaning towards. Yeah, there's just a lot of kids to lose. Yes, yes. But they had several living children, Carrie, Cordelia, Amanda, Alice, Walter D., Joseph E., and Slocum Gunger. Wow, that's That's a big family. It was, very. All from the same mom? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. How many kids did she have, like 15? Let's see, she had Because she had the twins. You said twins passed away. The twins passed away. And they, it looks like they must have passed away at birth because it doesn't provide an age for them. Oh. Jeremiah, and then the two, that's three, and then Robert and James. That's five that died. Okay. All right. Carrie, Cordelia, Amanda, Alice, Walter, six that lived, 11 in all. <sighs> wow. Yes. Kudos to that mom. Yes. Yes. So... But most of their daughters' homes were in the Campbellton area, and Alice lived about 300 yards from the Christmas house with her husband, Walter Holland. So that's where kind of by proxy my husband is related because his his mom's sister married a Holland. Okay. So, you know, uh, not okay. necessarily family by blood, but his, his cousin's distantly kin to them so right right so his daughter was married to walter holland and they had two children and so carrie married re cook from nearby cottonwood alabama christmas gave cordelia 80 acres of land when she wed will pilcher Amanda married jesse lott who also my husband's grandmother's were lots okay so lots of connections lots of connections mm-hmm. so and jesse lott had traveled from 
the Field Tobacco Company of Virginia to move here. And at 60, Judge Christmas was still in good health, but he had lost sight in one eye. In his good eye, he was plagued with a condition called ingrown eyelashes, where his lashes grew back under his eyelids. And Alice kept them plucked, but he often suffered great irritation due from this process and procedure. And after losing several children, Christmas was especially proud of his three young sons. And he wanted them all to have education so he eventually, so that they could eventually take over his business. When Will, the oldest son, completed his schooling in Mariana, he returned to the plantation. The judge bought out his partner in Campbellton on February 18, 1905, and changed the name of the mercantile business from Christmas and McGriff to J.M. Christmas and Son. Will ran the store located in an old converted two-story house with the help of his brother-in-law, Will Pilcher. The captain, as the black people addressed Will, became a popular figure about the town when he rode his familiar sorrel mare or used her to pull his buggy. Sometime in January, he removed his mare's shoes to avoid injury. With construction of the Atlanta and St. Andrews Bay Railroad, or Bay Line, was still in the planning stage south of Dothan, the Louisville and Nashville Railroad brought freight into Cottondale. John Justice and his son Jasper hauled merchandise and goods by wagon from Cottondale north to Campbellton for the Christmases. On December the 17th, 1905, 22-year-old Will married a girl named Minnie from Dothan, Alabama. They obtained temporary lodging with preacher Joe White and his wife in Campbellton. In the meantime, Joe finished school. The judge put him to work in the store, tending to um, or ending Pilcher's employment. So Will hired Pilcher and Jesse Lott, his other brother-in-law, to do the carpentry work on his new house, which was about 75 yards from the store. So that kind of gives a layout of where everything is. Mm -hmm. So now we're coming to where everything begins to take place. Before daybreak, the drizzly winter morning of Wednesday, February 7th, 1906, Jack Boone, a hand on the plantation, entered the Christmas home as he did every morning. He built a fire in the fireplace so that the family would, uh, would be warm when they arose. Then he returned to his own house for breakfast. When he came back with Jim Hall, another worker, Boone found none of the usual stirring around in the Christmas home. Fearing that something was very wrong, Boone ran next door to the Hollands. Alice followed Boone back to the house that stood eerily quiet. They slowly discovered a blood-drenched bed, uh, bedroom of horrors with three dead bodies draped on two feather beds. Mm. The judge lay in an angled position across rumpled linens with a cover up to his waist and one hand exposed. On the other bed, they found Martha stretched parallel to the headboard with one leg dangling down the side and Slocum who was 11, lay with his head touching his mother's, but his body extended down the length of the bed in a normal sleeping position. 
Mm. Blood oozed on the wooden floors and splattered the walls, the curtains, mirror, dresser, and the bedclothes. It was violent. It was very violent. In the hallway, more drops of blood led to the tall iron safe at the rear of the house. News of the killings spread like wildfire through the community. And by 8 a.m., a hundred people gathered outside of the house, eagerly waiting for news about the atrocious deeds and vowing vengeance. Florida lawmen faced what could become one of the most baffling and intriguing cases in the state of Florida. So that was part one of the articles that she wrote. So part two was when she um, started writing about the jury selection and the case. How small was the town? Cambridge is not very big. A couple of, now it has about a couple of thousand. So back okay. then, I, I can't imagine it would have had many. Right. Um, okay. So this has, and you'll have to forgive me because part of this article was cut out when it was sent or copied. It says W.R. Booth was one of the men to enter the house and discover the blood-covered bodies with Judge Christmas and his wife and son Slocum were covered or discovered by the hired hand Jack Boone and Christmas's daughter Alice Holland on the dark, drizzly winter morning of February 7, 1906, near Campbellton, Florida. Dr. Booth determined that from the degrees of stiffness and that the three had been killed sometime between midnight and 4 a.m., the murder weapon, a bloody, short-handled axe, was later found stashed near the safe hall or discarded near the safe hall. Sheriff Hay Lewis attempted to follow the hoof prints and the buggy tracks that led from the murder scene with his tracking hounds, but Rain had liberated some of the impressions, curiosity, and thrill seekers traveling back and forth on the Campbellton road had destroyed additional evidence. Idiots. <laughs> exactly. But even before Hayes began the detective work, others had been busy tracing the tracks. And as soon as Boone had left the murder scene early that morning, he trailed the shoeless horses or horse pulling the buggy while riding his mule. The tracks led back to Campbellton, um, and I cannot make out that word, went just beyond the public to Callaway Stable, uh, something about the judge's oldest son, uh, where his judge's oldest son kept his horse. Um, D. Pivas, the deputy sheriff, followed the same trail. Boone broke the news to Captain Will, who had just opened the store and was sweeping the floor. He did not mention the fact that he had been that he had tracked the horse, but told others in town about the murders while Will shut the windows and closed the store. Together, they all hurried out to the Christmas plantation. When they reached the grounds, they found a crowd of people standing around waiting for the news. Will went through the back gate with a few others. He slumped on the bed with his dead father for 30 minutes in shock and disbelief. Then he went back outside. Justice of the Peace, W.L. McKinley, held an inquest at the scene, but rumors were already beginning to circulate. Several people living along the road 
to Campbellton whispered about the way they saw two buggies on the road to the Christmas house that night. One of the horses looked like Will's red mare. Groups of men searched workers' cabins on the plantation. When wet clothing that still bore signs of blood was found, five black men were taken into custody. But Jesse Lott, a brother-in-law to Captain Will, commented to a man in the crowd that the search needed to be conducted in Campbellton, not on these grounds. That morning, Deputy Pybus and several others checked through the room that Will and his wife Minnie occupied in the Campbellton or in Campbellton at the Preacher White's house, but no damaging evidence was found there. On Thursday, February the 8th, 1906, the day of the funeral, the Dothan Eagle and other newspapers in the Southeast headlined the triple murder near Alabama town. The paper stated that robbery was believed to be the motive and a lynching seemed imminent following the capture of the killers and a, re a reward of $1,000 was offered by the residents of Campbellton. During this time, Will and Minnie, Will's brother Joe, and other family members remained together with the Hollands behind a special lock on the door of their house. They left only to tend to business. After the funeral, Will and Joe opened a safe or opened the safe that stood in the hallway of the Christmas house. Robbery was quickly ruled out as a motive in the killing, since inside did not appear to be disturbed. A total of $11 was also found in the judge's pockets after the murders. Yep, it was an inside job. Mm -hmm. The two men read the will that made Martha the chief beneficiary with $7,500 in cash the milk cow, and 400 acres of land. The judge bequeathed money to each of his children. In addition, the daughters were to receive 80 acres of land each. Joe, 220 acres. Will, 320 acres. And Slocum, the 11-year-old, the house at the age of 30 or after Martha passed away. But all inheritance depended on debts being paid first. During the course of carrying the will around, one of the sons picked a blood blister on his finger and accidentally splattered the document. This led to the rumor that the killer had viewed the will and spot, spotted it with blood just after the murders. But further inquiries proved that the will was unintentionally splotched at the corner days after the murders before being turned over to Judge J.C. McKinnon. On February 14, 1906, a week after the tragedy, McKinley Pibus, a man named Tarver, W.E. Bryan Smith, and a few others decided to search the Christmas store. And after checking behind bushels of Irish potatoes, shop counters, and horse saddles on the first floor, McKinley climbed upstairs to the general plunder room, or the cotton room, as Will sometimes called it. And after searching through trunks and barrels, McKinley discovered a bloody white Manhattan shirt with tiny red stripes wedged in the joist beam between the first and second floor. Mm -hmm. He showed the shirt to the others and they took it to Will, who at first denied owning it, but then changed his story and said he had bloodied it cutting up a hog. Right. <laughs> I was going to say it was him like 10 minutes ago. 
exactly. I mean, it just pointed to him. Yes, all the time. it was definitely him. Little information was forthcoming to the public until a month later when the Dothan Eagle and the Birmingham Age Herald of March 15th reported that new and sensational developments had been brought to light and the Christmas murder mystery was solved. According to the newspapers, I.A. Smith, a private detective hired by Hayes, had hid out in the woods near Cottonwood, Alabama, for several days under the guise of being an escaped murderer from Georgia. And Smith paid a man that he suspected of knowing more about the crime to bring him his meals. Then with the aid of a concealed ventriloquist, he caused a mule to apparently in inquire of the terrified man, the identity of the murderers. This man's superstition was aroused and it is alleged. He told the details of the murder to the mule. What in the world? <laughs> You need to read that part one more time. I am like, what? That, that is exactly what it says. I thought maybe I was hallucinating because of my this, strap. This guy, Smith, paid a man that he suspected of knowing more about the crime to bring him meals. Okay. Yes. So then with the aid of a, quote, concealed ventriloquist. <laughs> God. He caused a mule to apparently inquire of the terrified man, end quote, <laughs> the identity of the murderers. This man's superstition was aroused, and it is alleged that he told the details of the murder to the mule. Wow. Okay. So he was just like intrigued by this talking mule, and he confessed. <laughs> and they use that in court. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> you remember so, that scene in Shrek? Oh, my God. A talking donkey? <laughs> donkey? <laughs> oh, oh okay. So, Will Christmas and his brother-in-law, Walt Holland, were taken into custody, along with John and Jasper Justice, father and son haulers for the Christmas store. The group retained W.D. Farley and Price and Watson of Mariana, an Espian farmer of Dothan, to defend them. The state held a preliminary trial in April without the accused present. Thousands of people from all over the Southeast traveled to Mariana to hear the proceedings, which were held at Davis Hall while the courthouse was under construction. Those who could not get inside the building stood outside all day waiting for news of the trial. State Solicitor J. Walter Kehoe, C.E. Wilson, and Ellis Davis served as prosecutors with 60 witnesses sworn for the state. Jeez, that's a lot. Especially for 1906. Right, yeah, that's a lot. So <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm sorry about that, Dawn and everyone. As you can tell, Tara and Bear got their new bark box in and they're extremely excited. I'm so glad to let our listeners know that Crime Explorer Shack is now being sponsored by BarkBox. It's so exciting. I know. They, they are just thrilled to death. And BarkBox, like Dawn and myself, believe that dogs deserve the very best. I mean, after all, they're more than pets. They're family. 
Oh, yeah. And with BarkBox, each year for babies gets a monthly theme subscription of cute, clever toys and all natural treats that they love. Uh, yes, and as Crime Explorer Shack listeners, your fur babies get a special treat by signing up at our special link, BarkBox.com backslash Crime Explorers. Your dog will get a free extra month of their very own BarkBox. Guys, that's valued at $35 and it's valid on BarkBox's multi-length plans. Trust me, you do not want to miss out on that deal. Absolutely. Do not miss out on this. So go to www.bartbox.com backslash crime explorers. And that's with one E and treat your fur babies to fun and treats today, because we all know that our dogs deserve a million good doggies and treats. Yes, they do. <laughs> so testimony centered on horses, mules, buggies, and the bloody white Manhattan shirt found in the Christmas store. And when McKinley was asked how he knew where to find this shirt, he stated that he dreamt of the location weeks before the murder. Mm. Okay. So Emma McKinley, who was not related to the justice of the peace testified in the case. She stated that she was outside late that Tuesday night, rounding up her horse when she saw Will Christmas's mare and the buggy pass her house headed towards the Christmas plantation, but she couldn't identify the driver. McKinley was also outside by her hog pen in the early hours of the morning. As the moon peeked out from behind the dark clouds, she watched the horse and the buggy speed along the road on a return trip. And she knew the exact time because one of the saw mills in the area sounded its usual 4 a.m. alarm. The state concluded with Boone's testimony about the discovery of the bodies. Attorneys for the defense chose not to argue the case. Jasper Justice was released. Holland and John Justice paid low bails and they were released, but Christmas did not obtain bail, uh, set at $7,500 until May the 18th. So after a grand jury convened in June 1906, William D. Christmas was indicted for murder of his father, Judge Christmas, his mother, Martha, and his 11-year-old brother, Slocum. Unbelievable. And I mean, to just horrendously, violently kill them like that. That's uh, thousands of spectators anxious to obtain seats besieged on Mariana, Florida for the trial that began on November the 19th, 1906 with Jackson County Courthouse still under construction. Davis Hall again served as the courtroom since it was the only building large enough to accommodate this massive crowd. This dark hall took on an eerie glow as women wearing their best gold and green and brown fall garments, feathered boas, and flower-covered hats appeared behind small flickering lamps on tables. A hush fell over the packed room where the audience sat without moving, or where they sat without moving, intent on hearing every word that fell from the lips of these witnesses. The shadows that appeared on the walls made the session look like the Salem witch trials. Oh, geez. <laughs> so the opening day was spent with selecting the jurors with Judge Francis B. Carter presiding over the courtroom. And Dr. W.R. Booth appeared as the first witness describing 
the butchered bodies, the blood-drenched bedroom he found after entering the Christmas house. Evidence on display included maps, diagrams, and clothing. Uh, prosecutors spent the better part of the next day examining Jack Boone, Jim Hall, the two black men that were employed by Judge Christmas. Boone said that the last time he saw the judge was at dinner on Tuesday, and he and Hall were the first persons to arrive at the scene of the tragedy the next morning, and that they were the two of the five taken into custody as suspects in the murders. They were later released. Several witnesses provided testimony concerning the appearance of Will Christmas's sorrel horse and buggy on the road to and from the Christmas plantation the night of the murder. But some gave conflicting reports, stating that they saw two horses and buggies, while others said that they were called the Christmas mare with the rider on her back. The expensive white Manhattan shirt with tiny red stripes found wedged between the first and second floor of the house a week after the murder was discussed at length. The defendant admitted the shirt belonged to him, but explained that he sold it while cutting up and salting a hog in the back room of his store. When he realized the shirt was dirty, he changed it uh, into he changed into a spare that he kept in a suitcase. He tossed the bloody shirt on egg fillers behind the stairs, not where it was found, crammed between the joists. For some reason, Christmas declined to say who brought him the hog until later in the trial. Convenient, huh? <laughs> oh my gosh. Who has a spare shirt in there? Oh, I'm just going to bring a shirt with me just in case what? You just carry one around. Okay. Well, and, and you know, in my line of work, I have a spare shirt in my locker in case one of mine gets caught in the machine at work or something like that. But, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I understand, but then, like, wouldn't he want a spare pair of pants, too? And, like, you exactly. said, keep it at work, not not carry it around with you. In a suitcase, too. Right, yeah, okay. And, and then why wouldn't you go ahead and tell them who brought you that hog for slaughter? And yeah. And wait to the trial? That's convenient. Yeah, this is goofy. So, Will Pilcher, Christmas's brother-in-law, testified that Captain Will talked with him the Sunday prior to the murder. The families had attended church together, then returned to Pilcher's house. The two men met behind Pilcher's barn where Christmas pledged Pilcher to secrecy. Huh. Oh, <laughs> but, he told him he did it? Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. He te yeah, it says right here. Christmas's brother-in-law testified that Captain Will talked with him Sunday prior to the murder. The families had attended church together, then returned to oh. Pilcher's house. The two men met behind Pilcher's barn where Christmas pledged Pilcher to secrecy. I wonder why he kept it a secret. Exactly. Uh, Christmas told Pilcher that someone had been telling tales and he did not know what to do. He said the old man was getting, quote, two-sided as hell, end quote. But Christmas denied that he ever had this conversation with Pilcher. So, you know, Christmas saying, no, no. Of course, he's also said he didn't know anything about the shirt. Then he did. He didn't know who brought him the hog. So, mm -hmm. GM Shepard, a medicine man that was traveling by wagon, related that he rented a room in Campbellton near the Callaway stable the night of the murders. He arose near midnight to take some of his own medicine 
then heard a noise and peered outside towards the barn. I love this writing. He peered outside. Yeah, I know. It's like it's a fake story. It's a, a novel. He peered outside towards the barn. In the darkness, he saw someone that looked as if he were stealing his horse. But when he went outside, he found it to be a man removing a red mare's harness. He could not identify the man, but did remember him wearing a flat-topped hat. Several other witnesses provided testimony. By the end of the third day, Allie Richardson, the court stenographer, begged for recess to rest her hand from shorthand. She appeared on the stand several times to read testimony taken at the preliminary proceedings. Mm. When W.H. Watson, one of the Christmas's attorneys, began his presentation, he outlined his theory of the case. Maps and diagrams were produced. Witnesses for the defense were interrogated with the intention of impeaching the state's witnesses. The blood-stained um, the blood-stained wheel was discussed at length, along with the dead hog carried to the Christmas store prior to the murder by Jesse Lott, another brother-in-law of Christmas. Lott said he assisted in cutting the hog. Oh. Ed Peacock and Arthur Young, residents of Campbellton, testified that when Boone, Hall, John, and Jasper Justice and Af Curry were originally held at Peacock's store as suspects immediately after the murders. One said, quote, if you know anything about it, die by it, end quote. So they were basically all in that room saying, if you know something, don't say anything. Right. So it made no sense. But the five men denied that this statement was ever made. So many Christmas, the defendant's young wife, took the stand and was asked about her husband's activities on the Monday and Tuesday before the crimes. And she said that Will wore a white shirt with small black stripes, blue black pants, a gray coat, patent leather shoes, and a flat Stetson hat on Tuesday. Flat hat. This contradicted. Well. Yep. There's the flat hat. So this contradicted the statement made by Preacher White, who testified that the Christmas that Christmas wore a white shirt with red stripes that day. Many said that once her husband returned to their room at the Whites on Tuesday night at 11 p.m., he remained with her until morning. When Deputy D. Pibas and others searched their room later that day after the murders, Will's trousers were hanging behind the door under some of her garments, but the searchers showed no interest in those clothes. <laughs> so later on the fifth day of the trial, Christmas took the stand and narrated in full detail his actions of the week of the murder. And his testimony sounded like a colorful turn of the century novel. He told of the remaining, uh, remaining in the store Monday night, November the 5th until 10 p.m. so he could mark some hardware goods and arrange stock. And after he closed the store, he and his brother Joe went to the house of Jasper and John Justice, his teamsters, where he arranged for them to haul lumber and columns on Tuesday for construction of his house. And Will engaged the justices to make the trip to Alabama on Wednesday to move his wife's furniture to the remain and the remainder of her belongings to Campbellton. The two Christmas brothers then returned to their rooms for the night and Will 
to Preacher White's house. And uh, the next day, Will worked in the store till 1 p.m. And then he and a friend uh, rode to Blackman's Mill on Graceville Road in Will's buggy. The justices met them at the mill, but had to wait for lumber. So Christmas and Jones hunted birds in a nearby field. They arrived back in Campbellton between sunset and dusk. Will put his horse in her stall at the stable and pulled the door. But he did not roll his buggy under the shelter because he was in a hurry to check on the construction of his house and return to the store. He closed his business at 8.15, then walked to D.D. Mashburn's fish wagon, parked between two oak trees near his store. And Mashburn had traveled from the bay and peddled oysters to different communities. He sat with him a few minutes beside his campfire and ate a few shucked oysters. And after he left Mashburn, Will dined at a restaurant. Then he talked with a man named Harper for about 15 minutes concerning the digging of a well. And he stopped at Dr. Booth's store before proceeding to Miss Peacock's store where he heard his wife was a visitor. When he arrived at the Peacocks, he learned that Minnie and her friend Pansy Tucker had already left for their rooms. Will remained at the Peacocks for about 45 minutes, played a few pieces, and joined the others in song. At 11 p.m., he returned to his room at Preacher White's. He found Minnie in bed and remained in their room all night. It's a lot of alibis. It's very detailed. Mm-hmm. The next morning, Christmas arose early, intent on getting ready for the trip to Dothan with his wife. He rapped on the wall to awaken Miss White for an early breakfast. Then he dressed in a clean white shirt with small black stripes and a brown suit and went to the stable. My thing is, I can't remember what I wore the day before yesterday. Right. Yeah. Maybe he didn't have much in the way of clothes. Well, true. I mean... He likes stripes. We know that. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> he found his buggy in the yard where he left it between the mulberry tree and the barn, but his mare was moved into a different stall. When he threw his arm across to put on her bridle, he noticed she was wet around the neck, but he paid little attention to those things because he was more intent on watching to see if the weather would bear off. Because remember, it had been drizzling. So, mm -hmm. When the weather did not improve, Christmas told Justice he canceled the trip. Then he opened the store. Miss White rang her bell for breakfast, but Christmas did not respond. So near the end of November, Defense Watson, Defense Attorney Watson asked him five specific questions. Did you murder your father, mother, and little brother? Were you present when they were murdered? Did you know it was going to be done? Did you go to the stable and take your horse away that night? Did you lend your horse to anybody? Christmas replied, no, sir, I did not. Or no, sir, I was not to all of these questions. But Francis Ward, a customer in Christmas's store in Campbellton two weeks before the murders with a 12-year-old girl, gave some of the most damaging testimony. Oh, spill it. She told... <laughs> the tea. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs> she told of hearing harsh words between Judge Christmas and his son, Will. Yep. The judge wanted to know more about the, quote, $600. 
and was heard saying, quote, me and your mother ain't going to be pulled down by you this way. We didn't have anybody to build us up. We came up by our muscle in a little log cabin the size of a fowl house. This $600 has got to come, end quote. Yep. See, he was building that house, and I think him and Minnie were trying to live above their means. Oh, I'm sure. And and why would anybody else go in there and kill a father, a mother, and a brother, and then not steal anything? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then she also, Francis also said, his son replied, don't let it bother you. It will all come to tall at the right time. T-A-W. So Christmas's attorneys immediately moved to impeach Ward's testimony, saying she was the sister of one of the five men that was taken into custody immediately after the murders. Uh, Ward had once been in jail herself for a shooting, but she was not convicted of that crime. Further investigation into the finances of the Christmas and Sun's store revealed, however, that the business was not solvent at the time of the judge's death. Assets amounted to between $3,000 to $4,000 and liabilities of about $7,000. Christmas was also questioned about the number of visits he made to the store when it was closed during the week of the murders. The defendant said he entered the store about four times and was the only person with a key. He went one time to get white ribbon to hang on the door as a sign of bereavement. I thought black was the sign of bereavement. Yeah, no white ribbon. The summation, uh, in the summation, the defense attorney pointed out the conflicts in testimony of the state and the defendant's witnesses. He addressed the sorrel horse, the buggies, the buggy tracks, and blood splatter at length and suggested that while Christmas was working late in his store, someone borrowed his horse. So he went on to say that Will Christmas could not possibly be guilty because he sang and whistled with others at Campbellton that night of the murders. And he said that the state had not shown Christmas was present at the commission of the crime nor that he struck the fatal blow. And his closing argument for the state, C.E. Wilson pointed out that W.D. Christmas was the one individual who would most profit by the death of J.M. Christmas. And not only would he participate in the estate, but he would also be the surviving partner in the firm. (laughs) And he would be free to run the business as he pleased. Wilson brought up the fact that Christmas never gave a satisfactory reason for the blood on his shirt because a hog killed and hung six hours would not splatter blood. He also questioned why Christmas was never attempted to find out who borrowed his horse since it apparently was used the night of the murder. Right. (laughs) You think that'd be something they'd want to get to the bottom Exactly. Oh my gosh. And the jury deliberated for a total of 60 hours. And at mm. 8.30, the morning of November 26, they returned to the courtroom and announced that they could not arrive at a verdict. Wow. Judge Francis Carter instructed them to consider the case further and to try to reach an agreement. And at 10.30 a.m., they re-entered the courtroom and issued the same statement. 
Carter declared a mistrial and discharged the jury. Oh, no. After the trial, Christmas and his wife, Minnie, left Campbellton and they moved to Dothan, Alabama. A.D. Campbell administered this estate and a week after the murders of February 6, 1906, a strange letter to the editor of the Pensacola Journal appeared, suggesting the possibility that others committed the crime. It was written by T.R. Shoemaker, a prominent merchant in Cottondale, Florida, and it read, having noticed an article stating that the heads of the Christmas family were severed from the bodies and that robbery was the object of the murder, I wish to state that I have been in close touch with every detail of the affair and from the statements of the parties who viewed the bodies of each victim, I say that all were murdered in the same manner to wit the skull of each being crushed with two or three blows of an axe, but neither head was severed from the body. Now as to the object of this dastardly crime would say that there was not the slightest indication of robbery in the pockets of Mr. Christmas. His money still remained and in the trunk, which was left open by Miss Christmas was her purse besides some loose money in the bottom of the trunk was not molested and not a single article was missing that person knows all that because of what from talking <sighs> to everybody involved apparently so that is creepy as hell yeah that is i don't yeah that's that person is a real person or it's just a made-up name somebody it said that it was written by tr shoemaker a prominent merchant in cottondale and it read all of that and said, mm. public sentiment has almost concluded that it is the work of a before day club and what this continued on his statement public sentiment has almost concluded that it is the work of a quote before day club and woe be unto them if it should develop that such was the case mr christmas controlled considerable land and was a successful businessman yeah i don't know about that oh that just sent shivers down my spine i mean i think it's well it, yeah that's creepy i just think it's funny how like everybody in the town goes by letters <laughs> I know. WD and TC and EJ. <laughs> Everybody has initials. WM for Will. You know, that's yeah. crazy. Well, Robert Dorman of Panama City moved to into the Christmas house in 1929 with his parents, Willer and Lizzie, Jane Dorman, uh, and his brothers and sisters. The elder Dorman oversaw the prosperous 1,000-acre-plus 1, plantation owned by ETC Dickerson. <laughs> <laughs> An aged Civil War veteran of Dothan. A large commissary stood not far from the house. Farmhands that worked on uh, in the fields and employees in the nearby Rambo Lumber Company purchased supplies and goods from the store. Not far from the commissary stood the fenced-in section where the family and the friends buried the blood-soaked bedding, linens, and clothes from the murders of the victims in 1906. Yeah. Well, the Dormans had several scary experiences. 
um, in the house. They, and previous occupants had attempted to cover all the marks from the blood stains in the walls, but they said no paint would adhere to these oh, spots. Oh, gosh. And the, the uh, lighting rods had been installed on the roof. And at night, those rods would hit and they would rattle like someone was trying to get into the house. Uh, one of the kids said daddy would get up and he thought someone was trying to get him up. So they would they were thinking somebody was trying to rob them. And he would look under the house with a flashlight, but found nothing, Dorman said. The evening, Miss Dorman and Robert, who was 11 then, walked down to an employee's house. Um, with food and saw the spirit of a man remains forever etched in his mind. It was Ooh. dusky dark. We started out and went around the store near where the bloody clothes were buried. Then a man just walked out in front of us, plain as anything. He walked all the way down there right in front of us for what would be about a block and a half and then just disappeared. Wow. Creepy. And I, I said, Mama, where did that man go? And she said, I don't know. <laughs> the Christmas house ha also had a strange way of being illuminated when nobody was around. People would drive up, see lights, and expect to find someone home, but there would be no one there. Wow. Super so, creepy. And, you know, I told you I had been there. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, Butch's family ended up having the house. Um, Still? And, uh, they don't now. I think okay. they've sold it. Some of the distant cousins may have have it. But um, his aunt had it. And um, her son had been living in it. And um, he was... Uh, he was away for a little while. So um, my best friend, who is my husband's cousin, she was staying there while he was gone. Um, and she was going through a divorce at the time. And she had a little girl. And she was having a birthday party, a slumber party. Uh, I think she was about eight, nine years old. So a bunch of little girls all over at the house. And I was like, yeah, I'll go over there. So uh, my friend and I were... Uh, we were making pizza and everything, and she was telling me the story of the house. I had no idea <laughs> about anything <laughs> of the house. And I was like, no, this is not happening. You're just trying to pull my leg. And she's like, no, it really happened. And she started telling me, trying to find the articles to show me about it. So um, the stove would not, like, stay on. I remember we had trouble with keeping the stove on. Mm -hmm. And... One of the clocks stopped at like 12, 15, midnight, right after midnight, you know, 12, 15. And then when we finally got the girls to sleep, we went to bed and she and I were sitting up talking after we'd been listening to some music and having some wine and stuff. We finally about dozed off 2.30 in the morning. We all screamed a picture of like their great, great grandmother just slammed off of the wall. 
oh onto the floor. Gosh. I looked at her and I said, y'all have fun. I'm out of here. I got in my car and left. I was not staying there anymore. Oh, There's just too wow. many like, weird things. I left and I come home. I told Butch, I said, I'm not going back up there. I said, she was trying to tell me this house is haunted. Then this stuff happened. He goes, oh, it really did. He said, there was a, there was a family murdered in there. The house. Oh my gosh. I would, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I would pee my pants, poop my pants, everything. Oh. <laughs> but it was a beautiful house. I mean, the, the wood was just, it was, it was gorgeous. It was a gorgeous house. Yeah. Oh, it was crazy. Just knowing what happened, though. I mean, I after the fact, of course, but still, it's just, yeah. oh, I can't believe you went in there. And I went not knowing. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Fully believing. <laughs> well, I can't so, even believe that they can sell houses like that. You know, some people really like the idea of it and they want to stay the night in hotels and stuff that they know are haunted. No I way. Know, I know. It's crazy. It is absolutely crazy. So uh, anyway, so that's the story of the Christmas family murders and nobody served justice for wow. it. mistrial. That's yeah. terrible because the you could tell the writing was on the wall. Exactly. It was, it was definitely Will. W-M. Oh, W-M. <laughs> wow. It's crazy. Yeah. I just, and I, so that's another thing where it goes back to this crazy broken justice system that we have. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. not surprising, but it's just sad that it something like that, is. you know, no justice. That's terrible. Good story, though. Thank you. So anyway, this is going to be our episode for Thanksgiving week. So I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And, yes. Um, yeah, for sure. Gobble, gobble, gobble. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, we will uh, be keeping you updated on hopefully some Crime Stoppers cases during the holidays. And yeah, for sure. After the, the New Year's, I'm going to start trying to publish some of those. And um, thank you all for joining us. And Dawn, I'm glad that you were able to join us, even with strep throat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully next time I won't sound like this. But no, I was happy to be a part of it. Have a great Thanksgiving, Sherry. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate y'all. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.